And I will invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn to Psalm 100, a joyful noise. This coming Thursday is Thanksgiving. It's a day of deep meaning for we who are believers in the one true God. And today we're going to pause from our, our normal series. In fact, we're, we're going to be in, uh, topically in the morning for some time now uh, as we focus on various things over the coming months. But we're going to take time to pause to focus on thankfulness this morning. And it's my hope that, as I've mentioned a little bit earlier in the service, these themes will not get lost in the hustle and bustle of the week and all of the things that often accompany this week. We are a blessed people. We're blessed materially. We're blessed physically. We're blessed to live in one of the most prosperous nations that this world has ever known. We're blessed to live in a land where we have the privilege of worshiping freely without fear of persecution according to the dictates of our conscience. But even more than these things, we have been blessed spiritually, haven't we? Saved from eternal separation from God through Jesus' atoning death and victorious resurrection. Saved from the power of sin in our lives through the indwelling Holy Spirit. Saved from the intrinsic moral consequences of rebellion through God's Word. Saved from groping in the darkness as God has given us of His Spirit. And all of this is indeed cause for thanksgiving. Cause for the utmost rejoicing. Cause for us to lift up our voices in joy unto the Lord. Cause for us to desire to live in the light that God has purchased for us on the cross through His Son, Jesus Christ, who is the light of the world. And in order to express these thoughts to you this morning, what I'm going to do is walk through Psalm 100. We'll go a couple of other places as well. It's a familiar psalm for many. And it begins this way in verse 1. A psalm of praise. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord all ye lands. The purpose of this psalm, given right at the outset, many of the psalms have a purpose given right at the outset. It's a psalm of praise. That word praise that we see translated praise here in our King James Bibles is actually translated 17 out of the 32 times it's used in the Old Testament as thanksgiving. As a matter of fact, as we get farther in the verse, in verse 4, when it says, enter into his gates with thanksgiving, it's the same word there. Praise. Thanksgiving, uh, used synonymously in this psalm. It's a call to be thankful. It's a call to be joyful. It's a call to be delightful. To lift up our praises unto God. It's what the psalm is about. And my encouragement to you today is that this would also be what this coming Thursday is about. I know that there's a, a number of things that happen on Thanksgiving, and uh, those things are well and good as we take the time to spend with family and to rest and relax and enjoy the fruit of our labor. All of those things that we spent Ecclesiastes studying about that Solomon said are good and are right before the Lord. But let's take the time as well to be sure that we're making a joyful noise unto the Lord. Throughout the remainder of verse 1 and into verse 2, the psalmist gives a, a first set of commands regarding praise. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, we find here in verse 1, and take special note of unto whom the psalmist speaks. 
all ye lands. This is not just speaking to the redeemed of the Lord in Jacob at that time, the nation of Israel, but he says all lands. Praise the Lord. And we'll see why as we continue through the psalm. It's a universal call into thanksgiving that all lands would make a joyful noise unto the Lord. In verse 2, he says, Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before His presence with singing. Rooted in these commands to sing praises unto God is another command that we would serve Him and that we would serve Him with gladness. And then again, that we would come into His presence with singing, with praise, with thanksgiving unto Him. Now, I've moved through these two verses very quickly because what I'd like to do is get, get to verse 3 and I'd like to consider verse 3 first this morning and then after we consider verse 3 which is going to be kind of the hinge upon which everything turns then we're going to go back to verses 1 and 2 talk about them a little bit more then go forward to verses 4 and 5 and talk about them a little bit more and yet verse 3 is really the hub if, if uh, these five verses are a wheel verse 3 is the hub upon which those verses turn. The foundation of our praise. The reason why we praise. And that's going to be foundational even to this week. Why do we do what we do? Why do we praise? It's going to start in verse 3 and then we'll fan out from there. Verse 3 says this, Know ye that the Lord, He is God. It is He that hath made us and not we ourselves. We are His people and the sheep of his pasture. There are three distinct but interrelated levels of relationship here that I'd like to walk through with you this morning. The relationship between you and God. Why should you be thankful? Well, as I exhort you to be thankful this morning, I'd like you to think about your relationship with God. What does it mean? How do you relate to God? How does God relate to you? Each one of these reasons is going to be cause in and of itself to praise the Lord. But when we put them together, it should elevate us to the very heights of praise. And this is why every Thanksgiving I tell you that this holiday is uniquely Christian in character. It's uniquely Christian in character because when we recognize who God is and what He has done for us, and when we have accepted that reality for ourselves, we can praise God and we can be thankful in a way that no one else on this earth can. And I'm not trying to say that in a proud way. It's just simply the reality and the nature of thanksgiving. So if we can put it this way, verse 3 answers the question, why? Why should I praise the Lord? Let me give you the answer. Let, let's let the Word give us the answer. Number one, know ye that the Lord, He is God. The first element to this answer, why should I praise the Lord? Why should I thank the Lord? Well, number one, simply put, because the Lord is God. When you see the name capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D in your King James Bible, this is a designation for a particular name for God that's given in the Bible. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D is the name behind Jehovah or Yahweh, depending on who you talk to. The covenant name of God as introduced through the nation of Israel. Literally, the name means the existing one. He first introduced himself to mankind as Jehovah, our God did, in Exodus chapter 
3. We talked about it just briefly in Sunday school this morning. Perhaps you're familiar with the account. The Bible says this, beginning in verse 1 of Exodus 3. Now Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the backside of the desert and came to the mountain of God, even to Horeb. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed. And Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burnt. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called unto him out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here am I. And he said, that would be God speaking, Draw not nigh hither. Put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. So God introduces himself to Moses here, saying that he is the God of Moses' fathers. And if we were to trace this God throughout uh, Genesis, we'd find that he goes back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But we find that this same God goes all the way back to the creation account. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Then God commissions Moses to be the man who would take who would go at his behest to return to Egypt as God's messenger to lead the nation of Israel back to Canaan. But Moses is not fully on board with God's plan here. Moses is not fully comfortable with being the one whom God has chosen to be the deliverer of the nation of Israel. And so Moses walks down a list of concerns, all the reasons why God should not choose him to do this task. And one of these concerns is found in Exodus 3.13. Moses says this. Moses said unto God, Behold, when I come unto the children of Israel and say unto them, The God of your fathers hath sent me unto you, and they shall say unto me, What is his name? What shall I say unto them? What name should I give them? What name should I tell them the God of their fathers is? And God responds to him in verse 14 and says this. God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent me unto you. He's introduced here as not so much a who, but a what. Right? God is. Is. God is. He exists. He is the existing one, the uncreated one, the unencumbered one, the incomprehensible one, the unchanging one. He is what he is. He is who he is. Therefore, he says, if you want to give them a name, the name that you should give them is that I am. I exist. I am who I am. I am the only one, the existing one. The Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, in our Bibles, sent you. So we're talking about God, the Lord, the God of the Bible. Know ye that the Lord, He is God. Revealed from Genesis to Revelation as the God and the only God. It's a call to exclusivity. That He is the ever-existing One. He is the only God, the uncreated God. It does not say 
the Lord is among the gods here, does it? It does not say we think the Lord is God. We believe the Lord is God. It does not say the Lord is the best God or the highest God or the greatest God or the most powerful God. It says, know ye that the Lord, He is God. The idea is that He is the only God, the only one of absolute divine power. He is the only ever existent one, the only Jehovah, the only I am, the only one who can rightly claim that title as God. Isaiah 44, verse 6, the Bible says, Thus saith the Lord, there it is again, all caps, the King of Israel and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last, and beside me there is no God. He's the first. He's the last. He's the beginning. He's the end. Alpha, Omega, right? A to Z. Beside him there is no God. The Lord regularly calls himself the first and the last in the Old Testament. The idea behind this phrase is that he is at the beginning, he is at the end, and he's everywhere in between. He is God. Everything is about God. Everything that exists, exists in him. He existed before anything. He exists after everything. He is eternal. He is God. And as we trace the concept of the Lord as the first and the last, I want to make one very important and essential link for us this morning. And we link this truth that the Lord Jehovah God is the only God, the first and the last, that He is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, that He is the Creator God, that He's the God that appeared unto Moses, that He's the God of Israel. We link this all the way forward to the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ, where we read in Revelation chapter 1, verse 8, I am Alpha and Omega. Where, where, what is that about, Alpha and Omega? I mentioned it already. We talk about it. He says the beginning and the ending. Well, in the Greek alphabet, Alpha is the first letter of that alphabet, would be our A, and Omega is the last letter of the alphabet, our Z. Now, it's not the same. There's not even the same number of letters in the Greek alphabet as there are in the English alphabet. However, what he's saying here is I'm A to Z. I'm the beginning and the ending. That's what he says here, the first and the last. The beginning, the ending, the Alpha and Omega, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. He's always been the same. He always is the same. He is the great God. But then we notice in Revelation chapter 1, verse 17, And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying to me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. Notice the next phrase. I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. I have the keys of hell and of death. So here we have the claim to this one who is the first and the last, who also claims to be the one who was alive, then died, and then lives again forevermore. Jesus identified himself as being the first and the last. Jesus identifies himself as Jehovah God. Jesus is God. One more passage to seal the deal. Revelation chapter 22. 
The Bible says in verses 13 and 14, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are they that do His commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. Jump to verse 16. I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright and morning star. Jesus says, I am the Alpha and Omega. I am the beginning and the end. I am the first and the last. I am the offspring of David. I am the Messiah. I am Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus is the Lord. There are many groups out there that are deeply confused about this. They do not believe that Jesus is God. They might believe He is a God, a little God, a created being of Jehovah God, but the Bible clearly states that Jesus is Jehovah God. And this leads us to a concept that we call the Trinity. What is the Trinity? Who is this God that we serve? And how does He manifest Himself? How does He operate? The clearest teaching we have on the Trinity is found in 1 John chapter 5, verses 7 and 8, where the Bible tells us this. For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. John 1, 1 tells us in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, uh, and the Word was, um... have you ever had one of those moments? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was, thank you. <laughs> it's a blessing when my congregation can fill in those verses for me. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John uh, four, 1 verse 14 says, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And so we have here the Word being Jesus Christ, the one who was made flesh and dwelt among us. And then we have the Holy Ghost. And the Bible says these three are one. And there are three that bear witness in earth, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree in one. So the Bible tells us that there are three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that these three are one. But the Bible tells us quite clearly that they are not simply manifestations of the same person. It's not the same God in three different manifestations because they appear together at times. In Luke chapter 3, verses 21 to 22, Jesus is being baptized. And the Bible tells us that uh, as Jesus came out of the water, the heavens were opened and the Holy Ghost descended in a bodily shape like a dove upon him. And the voice came from heaven, which said, Thou art my beloved Son, in thee I am well pleased. So Jesus coming out of the water, the Holy Spirit descending like a dove, the Father's voice from heaven, these cannot be three manifestations of one person because there's three individuals here being manifested. So there's one God. Jehovah is His name. And yet, the Father claims to be Jehovah. The Son claims to be Jehovah. The Spirit is said to be Jehovah, although we didn't substantiate that today. Do we have a contradiction here? We do not. The Bible describes the Trinity this way. It's a great way to show it. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit are three distinct persons, but are one 
God. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father, but they are all God. And the best illustration I found of this, and I've given it to you before, is like a ballroom dance. Not like the dancing today, which has no, no meaning or purpose, but like when two people actually get together and they legitimately do a, a something, you know, a beautiful dance. So they come together and the music is playing and it's not random music that has no, no uh, purpose or no direction or no anything. It has actual like structure and beauty and all those things that God has created music to be, right? And the music is playing and two people come together and they operate as one as they dance, right? They are dancing together and they are moving together as one. And each movement, though there are two of them, is synchronized. Two people operating as one. Now, I know we can't visualize three people doing that, but that's the Trinity. It is three distinct persons operating as one God, the same in mind, the same in intent, the same in purpose, the same in desire, the Father being the will, the Son being the actor, the Holy Spirit being the empowerer of the capacity for God to function. Therefore, one God, three persons, the Trinity. Know ye that the Lord, He is God. Why should we love God? Why should we praise God? Because He is God. But what does it mean that He's God? Secondly, in this verse, it is He that hath made us. And not we ourselves. The Lord is God, therefore the Lord is our Creator. Genesis 1, 1 and 2 says that. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void. And darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. Verse 3, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. Do you see all three persons of the Trinity working here? God says, I want something to happen. The Spirit of, the God, uh, of God moves upon the waters and God said, the Word of God went forth. That's the, the Son. The Word from John 1.1 1, 1, that I couldn't quote to you just a minute ago. The Trinity, all working together to create the worlds, to create the universe, to create you and I. So that Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3 tells us this. Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the Word of God so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. The things that are made were not made of other things that were made. You can't... The elements that we see around us did not create the things we see around us. Can a Christian subscribe to the concepts of evolution, even even the theologically directed evolution, I don't think Hebrews 11.3 allows it. The Bible says that all things were created out of nothing so that the things which are made, the things that are, were not made by the things which do appear. Colossians 1.16 tells us Jesus is the one that made the world. For by Him were all things created that are in heaven and in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by Him and for Him. So where are we going this morning? I've given you a lot of facts, thoughts. I've walked you through the theological concept of the Trinity. Where am I taking you this morning? It's a good question. What does this have to do with praising God? 
Well, here's the thing. We start on the physical level. Know ye that the Lord, he is God. It is he that hath made us and not we ourselves. It is God who created us. It is God who sustains us. Life comes from God. Life is a gift from God. We heard Miss Andrea talk this morning about the Lord raising her up, and we're so thankful for that. And yet, as we consider life, we consider what Moses tells us in Psalm 90, as, as he prays unto the Lord, he says, Lord, teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. As we walk through Ecclesiastes over the past many months, since February 12th of this last year, we learned that life is a gift from God, meant to be enjoyed, but meant to be acknowledged. God has blessed us. Jesus, who is our Lord, He owns you by right of creation. You are His creation. And you ought to be thankful that God has given us life. But then the Bible takes it a step farther. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Being alive is cause to rejoice. And this is the one that all people across the Western world that celebrate Thanksgiving will do together on this Thursday. We will get together with our loved ones. We will sit around a table in fellowship and we will thank God for life. Or maybe they'll thank themselves or maybe they'll thank whoever. But they'll be thankful for life. They'll be thankful that their family is healthy. They'll be thankful that that they uh, have food and that they have shelter and all of these things. But we aren't just created beings made to live like little ants on a log scurrying around for the amusement of a creator. We aren't just automatons in some sort of grand uh, multiverse simulation. We're created beings made in the image of our creator, made to have a personal relationship with our creator. Genesis 1.27 says, So God created man in his own image, In the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. The idea of having the image of God is several fold. First, it means that we, like God, are three part beings. We mentioned that God is three persons in one God Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We are made up of body, material, soul, personality, will, spirit, spiritual capacity, three parts. The spiritual capacity is what sets us apart from the animals, giving us the capacity to have a personal relationship with God. And because we are created above the other animals, we have a natural dignity. Simply by virtue of being human, the image of God in man. But something happened to mankind, didn't it? Man fell to sin. Adam ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and mankind was separated from God. He died, spiritually died, separating his spirit from the spirit of the Lord who created us. This concept of death, literally the concept of separation. And at that moment of Adam's sin, Adam and Eve were no longer holy. Their spirit was separated from fellowship with God so that the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin, so death passed upon all men for that all 
have sinned. Sin entered into the world and sin passed upon all men so that death, spiritual separation from our Creator, passed upon all men. And so we're all sinners. Which means we've all been spiritually separated from our Creator. And because God is holy and only the holy can be with Him, when man dies, he is condemned to an eternity of spiritual separation from God. Because God hates sin. He cannot abide the existence of sin. And all who are separated from God through sin must spend an eternal separation with Him in a place of torment called the lake of fire. And that's the bad news. But Jesus came to bear good news, right? And that good news is this. You know the verse well. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The good news is that God loved you so much that He was unwilling simply to let you, let mankind remain in eternal separation from Him. And knowing that mankind was already dead in sin, and knowing that there was no way man could earn back a holiness that had already been lost, God sent His Son, named Jesus, to become a man, to live a perfect life. And at the end of that perfect life, Jesus died a sinner's death. And the Bible tells us that on the cross, in 2 Corinthians 5.17, He made Him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. That God took man's sin and placed it on Jesus. And Jesus suffered the separation in our place. And Jesus suffered the wrath of God in our place. And He did that so that as He suffered for our unrighteousness, God could then justly declare us righteous in Jesus. See, sin has to be paid for. God can't just ignore it. God can't just say, okay, I'm going to pretend like you didn't sin because God is just. If I had to pay for it, I'd have to spend eternity separated from God in eternal conscious torment. But since Jesus paid for it and the debt has been paid once for all, I can be saved from that. But though the debt has been paid, there is one requirement that God has made for us to receive this gift. We must accept the gospel. We must believe the gospel. What is the gospel? Jesus died on the cross for our sins. And He was buried. And He rose again the third day in victory over our sins. That if I will place my full faith and trust in the finished work of God, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1 says, Repent from my dead works and put my faith in God. Turning from my works, turning from my pride, not having a plan B, throwing myself at the feet of Jesus and saying, I can't save myself. I can't get myself to heaven. I cannot restore my relationship with you, but I know that you have already made provision and I accept it. The Bible says we'll be saved and have everlasting life. Now, how does this link to Psalm 100? John chapter 1, verse 12 says this, but as many as received him, to them gave He power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on His name. Galatians chapter 3, verse 26 says, For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. We are all related to God by creation. Every man who lives was created by God. 
When we are born into this world, the Bible says in Psalm 139 that we were fashioned by God's hand in the womb so that God knows us, so that we are a creation of God. But just because we're all a creation of God does not mean we're all children of God. This is a very important concept in this age. There are many uh, in the spiritual but not religious crowd that say we are all children of God. Well, the fact is the Bible says we're not all children of God. As many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. Galatians 3 says we are all children of God, but who's Paul writing to? Those who have put their faith in God by Jesus. Right? Those are the children of God. And if you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior today by putting your full faith and trust in Jesus Christ, then when Jesus describes His relationship with you in John 10, He described it this way. Verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth His life for the sheep. He becomes our good shepherd. We become one of His sheep. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. If you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior today, you are the sheep of the Lord's pasture. If you have never accepted Jesus Christ, if as I gave that very brief uh, gospel presentation today, you realize that you have never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, that you have never actually made that step, that the Holy Spirit is telling you that is not you. You are not one of His children. You are not the sheep of His pasture. Would you make today the day? Would you call upon the name of the Lord to be saved? Would you accept that free gift that has been given to you by grace through faith in the finished work of that which Jesus has already done? You can't earn it. Going to church is not going to get you what, to, to heaven. Getting baptized is not going to get you to heaven. Giving money is not going to get you to heaven. The Bible says, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. When we get to heaven, anybody who gets there will have nothing to boast in because all they'll be able to say is, I was saved by grace through faith. For those of you who have accepted Jesus Christ as the Savior, you're the sheep of Jesus' pasture. You've not only been given life, He is not only your Creator, but He is your Savior. You have been born into this world, therefore He created you. You have been born again, therefore He created you new in Christ. Into the family of God. And this should... Elevate our praise to the heavens. You've been redeemed from the power of sin. You're called out of this world into the citizenry of a heavenly home. You are washed. You are sanctified. You are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And this is a gift more precious than anything the world has to offer. This is a gift more precious than anything anyone will line up for at 2 o'clock in the morning on Friday morning to get. This is a gift more precious, more valuable than everything that this world can give. You belong to God, but more delightful, God belongs to you. God belongs to you. We are His people. We are the sheep of His pasture. He is our shepherd. He is our 
God. The Creator is not just the God. The Creator is my God. And according to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, all of those who have put their faith in Christ, the Bible says God is not ashamed to be called your God. Think about that. Think about the fact that the God who created all that is, the God who created the sunsets that you love in the morning and the sunrises, and, and, or the sunrises you love in the morning and the sunsets that you love in the, in the evening, the God that created the beauty that is around us, the God that created not just the beauty around us, but the beauty of the heavens is not ashamed to be called your God. And by this we rejoice. With that being said, with this foundation being laid, know ye that the Lord, He is God. It is He that hath made us and not we ourselves. We are His people, the sheep of His pasture. Let's walk back to chapter, or to, to verse 1. And we'll understand, based upon this hub of why it is we praise, what it is we should be doing. Number 1 and verse 1, be vocal in your praise. Be vocal in your praise. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all ye lands. This psalm of thanksgiving first compels us as God's people to actively praise God. As a church, we come together and we make this a focal point of each service. We sing praises unto His name. And notice what the text doesn't say. Notice the text does not say make a beautiful noise unto the Lord or a perfect noise unto the Lord. Aren't you thankful that it doesn't say that? Because we'd all, perhaps I'd say, at least speaking for myself, it would be a hard thing if we had to make a beautiful noise unto the Lord. But praise God, it doesn't say a beautiful noise. It says a joyful Noise, a joyful noise unto the Lord. In other words, even if you don't think your praise has too much to commend itself to the ears of the hearers, it has plenty to commend itself to the ears of God if it's with joy. Let us make this week a week to be determined that we would be vocal in our praise unto the Lord, that we would make a joyful noise unto the Lord, that we would show our thankfulness unto the Lord by being vocal in our praise. Number two in the second verse, serve the Lord with gladness. Show your thankfulness this week to the Lord by serving Him with gladness. The term that Paul uses is reasonable service in Romans 12 verse 1. The service to the Lord is not intended in any way in the life of a Christian to be a chore. Did you know that? Serving the Lord is not designed or intended to be a chore. It may involve chores. It may involve things that we are, are going to do that maybe aren't the thing that we would always choose to do. But we do it with gladness. Not because of what it is, but because whatever it is, it's our pleasure to be able to serve the Lord. We don't follow a religion. This book is not a book of religion. This is a book of relationship through belief. This is not a book of things you can do and can't do. There's nothing you can't do. It's just that if you love the Lord, you want to serve the Lord. And there are things that if you're serving the Lord you know you shouldn't do. And so you won't do because you love the Lord. Because you'll serve the Lord with gladness. And it'll make you glad when you don't do those things that you shouldn't do. 
because you're serving him. And that's enough. That's enough, isn't it? How much more, how much more blessed could a person be than to serve the one who created him, gave him life, and made him new in Christ? How, how much more could we be blessed than to serve the one who gave his life for us? Serve the Lord with gladness. Serve the Lord by giving him your time. Serve the Lord by giving him your efforts. Serve the Lord by giving him your priority. If you want to show your thankfulness to the Lord, be vocal in your praise. Serve the Lord with gladness. We memorized it several months ago, Colossians 3.23, and whatsoever you do, do it heartily as unto the Lord and not unto men. This philosophy is an outworking of a single characteristic in the lives of believers, and that characteristic is thanksgiving. Has God created you? He has. Has He saved you if you've accepted the gospel? If He's created you, if He's saved you, He deserves it. Let's serve the Lord with gladness. Let's be vocal in our praise. Number three in verse four, Worship with humility. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and to his courts with praise. Be thankful unto him and bless his name. This thanksgiving and praise that we have is intended to draw us into his gates and his courts. We don't just lift up our praise to God before others. God wants us to lift up our praise unto him, to bless his name. I don't just sing on a Sunday morning so that people can hear me sing to bless you. I sing to bless Him. His name. To praise His name. The joyful noise unto the Lord. God wants to be worshipped through His people. Through them humbling themselves before Him. Humble thankfulness. God, you're right. I'm going to align myself with you. God, your word is true. And if the Bible says it, I choose to believe it. God, I want your way. And if you show me that way, I'm committed to doing it no matter the cost. God, you are worthy of my time and my treasures and my talents. I'm going to give to you as a reflection of your worth. That's what it means to be in a relationship. It's not, I have to do this or else God will be angry with me. I have to do that, or my church will be angry with me. I have to do this, or my parents will be angry with me. It's, this is what God wants of me, and I love God, so I'm going to do it with gladness. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means to serve the Lord. And as we do so, we show Him His worth. We worship Him in humility. Be vocal in your praise, believers. Serve the Lord with gladness, believers. Worship in humility, believers. We do these things because of what God has done for us, because He is our Creator, and so He's worthy by right. He is our Redeemer, and so He is worthy by actions. Finally, in verse 5, for the Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting, and His truth endureth to all generations. Offer up your thanksgiving to God in praise, in service, and in worship because God is good and His mercy endures to every generation. And if you are a child of God today, then His mercy has been extended to you. If you're not a child of God today, His mercy is offered 
His mercy has been bought and paid for already and it's yours simply to receive because the Lord is good. I often tell people when I share the gospel, especially at the jail, if I were God, I wouldn't have done it this way. If I were God and my creator, or my creation as creator, my creation screwed up, I would take that creation and I'd crumple it up and I'd kick it to the curb and I'd make a new one. But see, the thing is, the Lord is good. He's good. And he says, I don't, I'm not willing that any should perish. My desire is that all should come to repentance. I'm going to make a way for man who has been lost to sin to be found again. Because the Lord is good. And what can we do because the Lord is good? We can praise Him. We can serve Him with gladness. We can worship Him in humility. We can be determined how this week of Thanksgiving is going to go. We can be determined that God's character and His works, His goodness and His faithfulness are going to inform how we respond to Him this week. The Lord is our Creator. The Lord is our Redeemer. The Lord is good. And it should work in us vocal praise, glad service, and humble worship. How are you doing this morning? As we prepare for this Thanksgiving week, What's the mindset of this week? Fathers, as you lead your families into worship this week, may I encourage you to lead them into glad, vocal, humble worship and service based upon what the Lord has done for you. Keep it front and center this week. Now, we always say, yes, we, it's something that we should keep in fr front and center the whole year round. But that's what Thanksgiving is for. Thanksgiving is a time of renewal. It's a time to give us that push start into a new year of thankfulness. Will you be thankful this week? Will you make this week a push start week, remembering that God is worthy by right to your worship as creator, but you know what? He's worthy by act as redeemer. The Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting. His truth endureth to all generations. Let's give him the thanks that's due unto his name this week.